Hello to those listening, and welcome to our podcast on Modeling Minorities. We are Asian American women, friends who met in college, and daughters of immigrants. These are the conversations we're having, or wish we were having, with our husbands, friends, families, and coworkers. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our show. In previous episodes, Jess and I have talked about our own experiences as Asian Americans living here in the U.S., And some of the guests that we've had come on the show were also Asian Americans or our husbands who are not Asians, but we thought it'd be really interesting to talk to someone with a completely different perspective. So Jess, do you want to share a little bit more about who we are bringing on today? Yes, I'm so excited to have Becky on our show. She's the director of a preschool called Lango. Um, It's based in Brooklyn. And my son went to that school. It's a fantastic Mandarin and Spanish cultural and language immersion school. And it was the happiest place. He loved it, Becky. And I know you know that just because you were with him every day. And he learned baby shark there for the first time in Mandarin. Thank you, by the way. It was all he did for a year straight. (laughs) And the teachers were so warm and so inviting. And I'm so happy that it was his first really formal learning and social experience. And so Becky, I'd love to hear from you. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself and what you've been up to? Sure. So I'm Becky. That's obviously not my real name. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How did you choose Becky for yourself? When I was in school, we had to do summer reading. And the first book I ever read in English Uh, when I moved here, was uh, Tom Sawyer. And Mm. there was a character, Tom Sawyer's girlfriend was Becky. And as a teenager who wanted a boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) You wanted a troublemaker boyfriend. I like like the book. I like reading about Tom Sawyer. And I, that was the first like exposure to an American classic. So I was very drawn to the, the character. And, uh, I liked it and I, I named myself Becky. Becky, what did you think about Tom Sawyer? Because so many of us either read it or we know the story so well. What did you think? It was like a kind of a rebellious story. It's for as a teenager, it resonated with me. Kind of wanted that freedom, you know, to do to do whatever I want. <laughs> it gives me a window into kind of like American culture, which I didn't really know much. I was like 13 at the time, and I came here when I was 12, by the way. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about your background and where you grew up up until 12, and then what prompted your family to immigrate here? My family is from Fuzhou, China, and uh, it's a place known for very hardworking entrepreneurial people <laughs> and, and also known for owning a lot of restaurants in the States. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So we like to make food and it's an important part of our identity. So my, my dad came here first on a student visa and we stayed behind. And then like many people decided to make a living in America and he became a chef. It took him many years to go from a busboy to chef, but he, he eventually got there. And he did that for many, many years. We were all living in China. He would send us money home to support us. And then eventually he got a visa for himself and for us to come to America after eight years apart. 
we we finally reunited with him in in the states. And he came here because he wanted to give us a better life. He knew that he eventually wanted to move all of us here. That was his ultimate goal at the time, and he did it. Did your dad arrive in New York? Yes, that was his first home. He had relative here who helped him get settled, help him get a job. Wow. So Becky, it sounds like you came when you were about twelve years old、mm-hmm. because your dad saved enough money, and then he was able to bring the whole family over. Yes, which is like one version of the American dream, right? Like moving your whole family over and giving them a different opportunity. So, did you then, at that point, go to American public school? Is that when you first started to, I guess, like become more Americanized because you were here? We first moved to Brooklyn when we first arrived. It was a pretty shocking experience for me because I have a totally different image of what America looks like. You know, people really talked up the country. Where I came from, they say you know it's such a rich country. It is. I mean, in many ways, it's way it it's way better than than where we used to live. But I think I like fantasize it a little bit more than usual <laughs> as a kid. And you know, you you haven't seen your dad, and you like just really want to go there, and you just imagine this you know beautiful place where your family live in a nice house, big house. And when we came here, my dad picked us up from the airport, and he took us to his apartment that he proudly showed off because he had rented it for us. It's his first home to himself because before he was. Sharing with other people, you know, other workers, I was like, "Wait, this is where we stay." It it was a basement with tiny windows in Brooklyn. There was like barely any furniture, a bed in the living room. It was very much unlike what I had in mind. So I was a bit shocked. Did you think you were gonna come to the U.S. and it'd be like a gigantic mansion with a swimming pool and all of that? I didn't know anything about swimming pool at the time. I had an image of a a nice house, at least a. Above ground, <laughs>、uh, with big windows, you know, lots of plants, nice, nicely furnished, but it was not like that at all. And I know preteens definitely wear their hearts on their sleeves. Was your did you、oh, did you show that your disappointment? I didn't at the time because I was happy to、mm-hmm. be with my dad. It kind of overshadowed all the other aspects. I did cry for a couple of months every night going to sleep because. I miss my friends so much. I didn't have any friends here. I was born in, and I grew up in the same village, so I had my whole life there, and I knew people since we were babies. It was really tough as a teenager, especially because you're at that time you're longing for companionship and socialization, and it was very lonely experience. And I didn't know the language here. I didn't、mm-hmm. know the culture. I didn't have the freedom. You know, here you. Because we were in Sunset Park, there were not a lot of space to run around. We were told to be careful. Whereas where I came from, we had mountains where we just roam around freely. We go swim in the lake. It was very much a rural upbringing, but with a lot of freedom and a lot of space. Becky, you mentioned that when you first moved here, you didn't. Speak English, and this reminds me that when I I was born in California, I was the first of my family to, to be born in the states. Okay, but because my first language was Mandarin,、mm-hmm. and also Taiwanese and Hakka, because my family is from Taiwan and they speak other languages, when I first went to preschool, 
I didn't understand anything that anyone was saying, even though I was born in the States. And so I'm curious, you came when you were older, what was that experience like? Already being so fluent in another language and then having to go to school and probably not understanding what teachers or uh, students were saying. It was very uncomfortable for me. I was used to being like a class leader. I was used to being outspoken and kind of like the fun one in, in my class. So all of a sudden I was kind of like a mute, you know, I couldn't really understand anything. I couldn't really express myself. We couldn't really communicate with anyone except people from the Chinese community. That was, that was very unsettling for me, at least because I have always felt like I belong, at least where I came from. And then all of a sudden I felt like I didn't belong and I was different, so different that I felt very uncomfortable with myself. And there were a lot of bullying in that school between different ethnicities uh, among people of the same ethnicities as well. And wow. so it was, it was not a best environment to study um, and to go to school. And that's, what's so interesting about the fact that you became an educator yourself. I'm so curious, what about your upbringing or your background? Did that contribute to your ambition to want to be an educator? That's a good question. I didn't think I was going to be an educator, to be honest. It kind of happened by chance. I didn't think I have what it takes to be an educator because I came here, I barely understood the language. I was not confident with my English at all for the longest time. And then I moved out of Brooklyn to Long Island after a couple of years. And over there, I was the only Asian in that school. And I stood out a lot and I didn't like it because people would pick on me for being different. The kids were in high school, they're kind of mean. <laughs> I became very anxious. At the time, I didn't know, but I developed select selective mutism where I only speak to a couple of people that I'm completely comfortable with and the wow. teachers. And I was quiet the whole time for like four or five years. Uh, one time toward the end of senior year, I became a little bit more confident. So I like started talking and I remember this boy look at another boy and said, she talks because I never really like made a sound in class. I tried to hide my Asian-ness for the longest time it, during that period because I felt like it wasn't welcome. So I tried to stay quiet in order to not get its attention. And that kind of reinforced the cycle of me feeling unseen and unheard and invisible. Like I wasn't understood. And I was kind of embarrassed about my, my Asian culture. Whereas before I came, I was very proud of it. I didn't really have any shame about who I was. But coming here and going to that school where I was the only Asian, I felt the need to kind of blend in. So I tried to hide it as much as possible. I tried to dress like them. It was traumatic, but it also made me who I am today, made me a stronger person because I was able to come out stronger on the other end. Um, How did you come out of that? I was working at my parents' restaurant, so I picked up my English through working there, answering phones, managing customer service. That really helped push me to speak in front of people. And my parents, they're blue-collar people. They didn't really focus too much on education, even though they knew that 
it's important. They just didn't really know how to help me. They didn't really push me to focus on my schoolwork. So I would like work and then do my schoolwork after I finished working in the restaurant. But I didn't want to work in restaurant for the rest of my life. Even though we were doing well, my parents were financially secure at the time. And I knew if I want to be something else, I have to have an education. So I pushed myself really hard to study. You basically hit on a huge Asian stereotype, right? That like, we're all about school and all about education. And I think that that was really eye-opening for me that you say that your parents didn't necessarily push you in that regard because your dad wanted to bring you here for a better life. And I always assume like, oh, it's because then they can send you to an Ivy League or something like that. But no, it was just, there's more opportunity to make money here. And did you get the sense that they wanted you to take over the restaurant business? Yeah, they sort of expect me to not be interested in school enough to continue Mm. to college. I think in some way they thought I was going to be the typical oldest immigrant child who stayed behind and helped their parents with their business. But I was determined to like get out of that life. And so when I got really good grades and they're like, what, what does that mean? I was like, yeah, what, what is this? I'm doing really well. And they're like, okay. They didn't really believe me for the longest time that I was able to go to college. They were still shocked when I told them that I had to give a speech because I was the salutatorian <laughs> at the school. And then no they're, way. Like, they're like, wait, So you're like number two out of 125 kids who who were born here. And even toward the end, I think they didn't think that I was going to do it. Yeah. And I I was like, no, mom, dad, I got accepted. (laughs) Where did you end up going? Dartmouth. Oh, wow. That's awesome. You did do the IVs. (laughs) (laughs) And Becky, was it in college that you first explored the idea of becoming an educator? Yes, I would say about second year of college, I would say I, I became more confident in myself. I became more outgoing. I became more proud of my heritage. I started taking uh, more Chinese classes to improve my Chinese. And it made me realize there's a chance I could do this. I could educate people about my culture and my language. It's one of those things I feel most confident about at the time. But I didn't really pursue it because I was more interested in finding a a career that would, you know, make my parents proud and a career that would take me to a more financially stable lifestyle. I studied pre-med. My focus was to be a doctor in college. That's, that was what I thought I was going to do until I had to go back to help my parents. We started a Chinese Japanese fusion restaurant after college. They asked me if I could do it with them. So I did. And then the business kind of gave me insight on how to run your own business because this time I was really involved in everything from back to the front. So I I felt more confident as a business owner. After that, I, I want to be an entrepreneur. And then I moved to New York City because I told my parents I would help them for two years and then I will move to figure out my own life. And they let me do that. I landed internship as a marketer uh, at a, a language company for kids on the Upper East Side. That was my first taste of what it takes to be an educator. And I, I loved it. It was the first time where I felt like I belonged in a field. 
I just connected with the kids. I just felt very much like myself in front of them. I love making them laugh. The way I was taught to teach was very playful and it matched their learning style very well. And then about a year later, the former director of Lango, the company that I currently own, she happened to want to retire from the business. So she asked me if I want to buy Lango and that just came out of blue. So I talked to my parents, they were supportive and they helped me, you know, finance the business and the rest is history. I love that. And Becky, you touched on just how fun and playful your teaching style is. Yeah. Can you explain, only because I really, this is the first time I'm hearing any of this, like how does that play translate to teaching the students about Chinese culture or mm-hmm. even language? Sure. We incorporate a lot of cultural stories and songs into our curriculum. For example, when we celebrate Chinese New Year, we will read books about the story of Nian, the Nian monster. We will read about the food that people eat during the holiday. We will have classroom performance where kids dance to traditional Chinese New Year songs, the mythology that we use, which is very much movements and arts oriented. And I felt like younger kids have have more of ability to learn through play, learn naturally through just exposure and conversation. One of the other thing that we really like to do is to invite parents to make dumplings with kids, to talk to them about the traditions behind the, the holidays and the meaning of food, like the shape of food, what it means. So arts and craft is a big part of it as well. We're still able to like incorporate the cultural element without making it boring. It was not boring. Like Andy came home every week learning a new song with like a choreographed dance to it. It was so amazing. And I was so impressed because he would just like bust out singing. And I had never heard of the song. And then I would like have to look it up on YouTube and I'd be like, oh my gosh, she's actually singing the right words. It's a real song. I just don't even know. Oh my gosh, I love Um, that. Because admittedly, like sometimes I wouldn't even know the the idioms, like the the duck song. Can you sing it? Because I would love so to hear it. Munchia it's it's really fun song. It's- oh yay! <laughs> Becky, I love it. Yeah. So what does that mean? Don't cook the egg and take it home. So an egg is the shape of a zero. Uh-huh. So don't get a zero score on your test and bring <gasps> oh it home. Oh my gosh. Wait a minute. My mind is blown. <laughs> yeah. And do, do the kids understand that context? They do because we would usually show them like the the image, the video first. <gasps> in the video. Oh my gosh. So we, that's, we usually teach them through songs. 
Um, we want. That's what I mean. Like, oh my yeah, gosh, I learned that. I just learned it right now on the show. Oh my gosh, and you know, I I love it because a who doesn't want to learn a catchy song? But also in that song, for <laughs> listeners who don't speak Mandarin, it's about a duck and it has numbers and it has this really clever pun. Right, yeah. mm-hmm. Becky. Can I go to your school? I know you're capping the age group, but I think I have to. Um, I think it also speaks to the fact that I was so surprised. I mean, I'm an Asian American, and I have a passing knowledge of Mandarin, but in a lot of the kids, uh, at least on the Chinese immersion side of the school, were not from Chinese speaking mm-hmm. families, mm-hmm. and so like they wouldn't have a parent being like, "Oh my God, that's a hilarious pun in that children's song." You know, were you surprised by the demographic or? No, from day one, my class had been like that. Uh, it's it's a mix of native and non-native speakers. We rarely get monolingual native speaker whose family only speak Chinese. We usually get kids from multicultural background, where one parent speaks English and the other speaks Mandarin, or both who speak English. But when they go to school, that's where they pick up the language,、mm-hmm. like. You know, you grew up speaking Mandarin at home, but it's just like the second you go to a social environment,、right. you want to fit in with your friends, right?、Yeah. I'm so intent about sending my kid to a, if not immersion, then dual language, because I'm just like he needs to know that it's okay socially to speak Mandarin, because otherwise, yeah, yeah why would he? You know? Yeah, I have a friend who spent four years hiring only Mandarin-speaking nanny and speaking Mandarin herself to her son, and then she sent him to a school in Lower Manhattan, where Mandarin wasn't taught. They have Spanish class, but Mandarin wasn't part of it. And before turning five, he started to refuse to speak Mandarin、mm-hmm. because he sees all his friends speaking English, and English is、yeah. more dominant. In his house too, because dad only speaks English. I think until f- like up to four, you just your parents were like the one you kind of you know model after more. And after four, at least in my experience, I sense the kids want to f- belong to the group more, and they start to like drift away from the less dominant language because they want to feel accepted and they want to be、yeah. part of the group. So my family, growing up, they decided on this thing, which is they wouldn't respond to us unless we spoke to them in Mandarin. Meaning,、yeah. if we were like, "Oh, can I watch TV?" they would just shake their head and like pretend they didn't understand and shrug.、Yeah. It was, "Oh, I don't understand you. I don't know what you're saying." Until we switched. So that I thought was pretty successful for the most part. When I was with my cousins, even more reason like if we wanted to go to the movies, we'd be like, "Just ask in Chinese because it's faster to get the yes out of the adults." <laughs> you know, it was so funny, and、oh、they were、God. very clever to do that to us. And well, you're teaching this to. Foreigners, meaning foreigners of China, but they're Americans. Does it make you feel more connected to your roots because it's a place that you left behind, but now you have to explain and articulate what it all means? So there's a part of you getting to reconnect with that part of your identity. Yes, it's a great gateway for me to educate other people about my culture. I try to suppress. That for many years my identity, and once I had the chance, I really like I went all out. <laughs> I opened a language school. I started teaching kids of language Chinese. I teaching the parents how to make dumplings. Parents, <laughs> yeah, 
it was a yeah I, I I enjoyed it I enjoy spreading you know the was it history was it like a was it a unleashing or was it a relearning for you it was more reconnecting I really love my culture I really love my food so I really want to reconnect with that root. It reminds me that for Chinese New Year this year or Lunar New Year, my mom made a bunch of dishes and there has to be like a fish. Like there's certain dishes you have yes. to have. Right. And then I was kind of mad because I was like, mom, I'm in my 30s. You never told me this growing up. And she was only doing it because we were like with my nephew and she was trying to teach him yeah. the symbolic meaning behind the number mm -hmm. of dishes, what dishes they were supposed to be. Yeah. Did you have to ask your parents or did you just know and remember because it was something you did your whole life? My parents aren't the type of people who like go in and talk about th what things mean. And I don't even know if they know what they mean. <laughs> I think they just do it because it's a, it's a something they learn from their parents and, you know, their parents kind of passed down to them. So they just, it's something that's almost unspoken in our family. We have to have noodles. We have to have fish on, China, on Lunar year, New Year. We have to have rice cake. We have to have fish ball. <laughs> like that's in, at least in our Fuzhou. Fuzhou one. So it's a giant fish ball because there's a meatball inside it. It's so good. Oh. Yeah, it has bursts of flavor. I, I I love eating it. But my husband, who's American, white <laughs> specifically, he's he doesn't like it that much. Uh, I thought it would be like the entry point for white Americans. Yeah, that's like, like surf and turf, essentially, in a ball form. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think where he came from, he don't eat much seafood. So like anything, oh, where's, he, where's he from? Yeah, where's he from? Virginia. What, like, oh. what? Virginia. <laughs> Virginia has seafood. Is he on uh, the inland or something? He's the Chesapeake the Bay. He's more near the Appalachia. Oh. So, hey, this yeah. is this is the perfect segue because I wanted to ask about your husband. Mm -hmm. So you just mentioned he's white American. Were you planning on marrying like a white guy in the U.S.? Was that something no, you ever considered? <laughs> I never planned on it, actually. I thought I was going to marry a Chinese guy. And then I went to college. I got a lot of exposure. I have friends from all background. I think it was like, for me, it was just like a comfort thing. I became more American. So I became more open-minded. I just went with whoever fit my, you know, personality the best. And I think by, you know, I got married pretty late at 32. By that point, I have been to... That is not late, Becky. It's not late, but no. to my parents, super late. <laughs> yes, to Asian parents, that is like, you're an old maid at that point. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And it's like about, you know, what other people think a lot of time, like what people think in the sure. community think. Um, so mianzi, right? pressure, <laughs> mianzi, yeah, face, safe face. Yeah. Um, so no, it, it was more like at that by that time, when I met my husband, I had been in America longer than I've been in China. So I, I was much, I felt much more comfortable. And I also had a late start on dating, I had a late start on figuring out my career because I had to go home, help my parents. And there I didn't date anybody. I didn't date anyone in college because my parents said I should focus on my school. <laughs> so I like wanting to be the good daughter. I was more career driven for the first 10 years of my twenties. And 
I just want to figure out what I want to do. And so I was very behind with it, all that like dating stuff and career and took me a little longer than my peers to figure out. Yeah. And now you have a beautiful daughter and another one on the way. Another one. And like, uh, how has it been raising your kids in Brooklyn? It feels a little bookendish where you arrive here in Brooklyn and now you're raising your daughter here in Brooklyn. Do you think about that that circle, I guess? Yeah, I, I, came, <laughs> I did. I actually talked about that the other day with Jack, my husband, and about how we came to Brooklyn first and now we're in Brooklyn raising our, our kids here. It is quite interesting because my daughter, I have a complete different childhood than her. And she's like exposed to people from all kind of background from birth. She's got black friends, white friends, friends from multicultural family that she met at the playground. Like she's comfortable around people of all ethnicities. She has no bias of any kind and just very comfortable in her own skin, which was not the case for me. We're in Brooklyn, but it's, it's still a city. Whereas me and my husband both grew up in the rural area. So we were much more sheltered. She's been on subways multiple times. <laughs> she has more toys than I ever thought was possible. <laughs> Like I have no toys growing up. We were like let out into the field and like go play, you know, go figure out, you know, how to build with sticks and mud. And I think in some way I would like her to have some of that kind of environment, like a, a, some exposure to that. So we enjoy going out to her grandparents' place in rural Virginia. And she has this huge field to run in and we feed neighbors donkey every morning. And so, um, yeah, I would. I try to give her a bit of a both while she's young. Yeah. Um. But yeah. But Becky, and this is. I'm not sure if you've given. I imagine you have, just because you're such a thoughtful person. But like, the fact that you're talking about how your daughter is, is exposed to so many people of different cultures and backgrounds and races, and you know this this notion that she doesn't have a bias. Mm -hmm right now um because we often hear about that right we hear about that research where bias is taught hate mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. fact is mm -hmm. taught yeah. and you pick it up and kids as young as three yeah can start to feel this hierarchy in people whether or not it's their race whether it's their class whether it's their body type i guess i'm bringing it back to the fact that you are teaching culture and you're teaching a new culture to somebody and do you find that by exposing kids to different cultures at this early age that it does make a difference in how kids have the tools to interact with new people to interact with different basically yeah is that exposure just like that bare minimum to helping us kind of yeah. combat discrimination and racism or or is it all hopeless? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, there's a reason why we're still de dealing with this because we don't know like the exact yeah. answer to that. But I just want to do my portion. I want to educate her to be open-minded, to not judge people based on superficial differences. Having been on the receiving end of racism, I know 
how terrible it feels to be picked on for being different. And I, I would never want her to, to do that to other people or to receive that from other people. So I'm just doing my best to educate her, to expose her, to talk to her at her level. Hopefully when she gets older, we'll have deeper conversation about it. But for now, I just try to be a role model for her because they learn from us. Like we are their world. Everything we do, they copy. So I'm just trying to be as a good citizen as I can be in front of her. And uh, hopefully she will understand the world through her own lens through her own learning as she gets older i can't control how she's gonna see it we're all different jack and i talked about it and we're also learning step at a time you know how to do this parenting thing and i believe that if you give them the right tool and you show them how to be a good person they will pick that up and do it on their own when they're older yeah you and jack are such incredible parents because you're also giving your daughter the space to learn this and to try things out. Well, Becky, this has honestly been so awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you. My pleasure. I had a lot of fun talking to you. I hope uh, I I made it interesting enough. (laughs) You did. Oh my gosh. I like could go on forever. And also I want you to teach me more songs. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. This is really meant to be a conversation, and we'd love to hear from you. Email us at hello at unmodelingminorities.com. Unmodeling Minorities will be released every Thursday. Hope you join us next time.